Good afternoon. This is Dr. Dan Guerra coming to you from Authentic Biochemistry Studios in the Inland Pacific Northwest of the beautiful United States of America. We're going to be continuing on our discussion of clock genes and the circadian clock in humans. And I want to give you a little bit more detail on the um, interaction of all of the gene products and how transcription is controlled. Just kind of recap all of that particularly because I'm going to bring up one very interesting transcription factor that we have encountered before that I reintroduced yesterday in the lecture, and that's infill 3. Infill 3, if you recall, is very important in the acquired immune response, particularly in T lymphocytes. So I'm going to bring that up again because I want you to understand how the same transcription factor can be working in a totally different system in different cells, but that the regulation of that transcription factor, that is the inputs, may be similar. And so when you think about how genes are controlled in terms of their expression and turnover, and how mutations in one particular gene in some cell system may invoke, let's say, uh, an inhibition of a T lymphocyte response, um, the same kind of mutation in a gene that is not related to the immune response may have totally different pleiotropic effects or may actually converge in interacting with the immune response because of downstream mediators as well as upstream mediators which induce the induction process allowing for the use of that transcription factor. So what I'm saying is that there are players in the field in biochemistry proteins, nucleic acids, lipids, carbohydrates, steroids, you name it, that have the same molecular chemical signature and do indeed operate at some level of organization um, that is described in, say, one tissue system or cell system, but which may carry out, carry out entirely different final function. And so the reason I bring that up again is because think about mutations and think about the slowing down the senescence process during aging and how similar gene expression patterns may be found to be debilitated in totally different systems. Let's say a muscle system versus the central nervous system, right? And part of that has to do with the fact that transcription factors are shared, again, with slightly or sometimes totally different functions comes into again this whole concept i've been telling you that nothing replaces in something at an identical level there is no identity in any biological system there is no identity in any chemical system or physical system because everything is an event and it changes over time so even if you have exactly the same gene product let's say this infill 3 transcription factor um, has the same amino acid sequence is what I'm saying. It may interact with different partners and different cell types to carry out a, a chromatin remodeling resulting in messenger RNA production um, from even a similar uh, DNA uh, element that is the element that it binds to. But the products of that, the transcripts themselves, could be very different. Yet, because of the homologous transcription factor working in these multiple systems, they are coordinated at a higher level, a hierarchical level, 
because they're using the same transcription factors. So think about the evolution of those gene products and also think about the fact that whatever they're regulating, if they're being in, introduced as an active component of a system, therefore mediated by some input response, some other molecular species, it may well be coordinated at a level that isn't normally described in scientific literature. And so you have to dig that out. You have to pry that out of the, um, the plenum of published literature. And to do that, you have to do a deep dive. And that's what we do at Authentic Biochemistry. So let's get right back into these clock genes. Last time I told you that um, you have the clock BMAL1 uh, transcription factor, and that's considered a transcriptional loop, and it transcribes nuclear receptors such, such as the REV-ERB-alpha and REV-ERB-beta, and that those are going to act as suppressors uh, or as negative regulators. So once translated, those proteins compete with the retinoic acid, for example, with retinoic acid uh, orphan receptors, the ROR alpha, ROR beta, ROR gamma, uh, for the binding sites of where those normally would bind to. Um, and that could be for the gene that is responsible for synthesizing the uh, protein that becomes the transcription factor, BMAL1, right? So you have to consider these as being tightly organized feedback loops at the transcriptional level, but also at the level of protein synthesis, that is translation. So the whole system has to be coordinated so that, so that the correct amount of each of the proteins, transcription factors, secondary and tertiary proteins that must make, that allow those transcription factors to bind well to the response elements in the promoter region or enhancer regions of the DNA that are going to enhance chromatin remodeling in such a way that a new transcript is made. They all have to be coordinated, not only at the level of what proteins are involved in putting together this molecular interaction, but also at the right stoichiometry, the right concentrations. And also remember, they're always turning over, right? Proteasomal degradation, because that's one of the ways you regulate gene expression. Okay, I talked about multiple feedback loops. I told you there's a third feedback loop that involves this D-box binding protein, the DBP. And then that is where the nuclear factor interleukin-3 regulated protein, the infill-3, comes into play. So that's where we're going to start talking about right now. Today, by the way, is the 29th of October, two days to Halloween, and it is, of course, 2020. So... What I want you to get a, a, a good understanding of is the complexity of this system. So you have core components of what's called the mammalian circadian clock. And in the core feedback loop, you have this transcription factor BMAL1, and you have the clock. Okay, those are two important transcription factors. They're going to bind to EBOX domains on certain DNA elements or promoters, and those include the genes for the PER1 and PER2 genes and the CRY1 and CRY2 genes, right? So the PERs are the period genes and the CRYs, remember, the cryptochromes. So, for example, you get inputs that come in to two response elements. One is the cyclic AMP response element known as CRE, and the other is the serum response element known as SRE. 
So those inputs then will be will have proteins bind to them, and they are going to be associated with multiple series of proteins bound to this D-box and E-box system, which will then induce the transcription of the PER1 gene. Likewise, the CRE and the SRE will be induced. Remember what those are those stand for. And you'll have a D-box and E-box, and you'll have a PER2 gene product, right? So the PERs are going to interact with, for example, um, the CK1 epsilon delta, and it's going to allow, that's a, that's a kinase, by the way. And that kinase will then phosphorylate the PER gene. And then you're going to have a beta trip CP, which is going to interact with that phosphorylated protein. And then that is now a substrate for ubiquitinylation in the 26S proteasomal degradation of the PER gene. Okay? So that's what I just took you down one of the routes. Likewise, you can have um, two, two different transcription factors, such as the BMAL and the PER gene working together, right? Or the BMAL and the CLOP gene working together. And they can bind now to an RRE, right? That's a different response element. That's the retinoic acid response element. So they can bind heterologously, making dimers, as can the clock gene, the PER gene, for example, can bind to the E-box. And together, they're going to make the CRY1, or if you don't have the RRE interacting with its transcription factors, um, then you're going to have only the E-box loaded with this transcription factors, that's going to make CRY2. Once you make the, the cryptochrome uh, proteins, those are going to also interact with some PER protein, and that will allow for phosphorylation, again, by the CK1 epsilon delta. And that's going to allow for a nuclear translocation of this PER CRY, CRY with two phosphorylation sites, um, protein now in the nucleus. That then will meet up with uh, a, a, another kinase, another CK kinase, and that's going to then block the BMAL1 clock gene expression. Okay, so it's another feedback loop mechanism. So you get the idea how this works. So um, again, BMAL1 and clock bind to EBOX domains on promoters. And that includes the genes for PER1 and PER2 and CRY1 and CRY2, something I just went through now with a little bit of detail. The PERs and the CRYs, right, those two gene products, dimerize and translocate to the nucleus, as I just said, after binding with this protein called CK1 delta. Now, that's the, the CK stands for casing kinase, of course. You also, it can also interact with another kinase, which is CK1 epsilon, as I just said. And they repress their own transcription, which is what I just described. Now, the stability of the period genes and cryptochrome genes is regulated both in the cytoplasm and within the nucleus by a lot of other new proteins that we talked about last lecture. Those include the FBXL21 and FBXL3. Okay. Now, in that second feedback loop, the clock and BMAL1 genes products also regulate the retinoic acid beta and retinoic acid orphan receptor gamma. 
and they're binding to then the retinoic acid receptor elements. Those are called RREs. And as I said, that's going to be in the BMAL1 gene promoter. That's going to provide both a positive, that's the ROAR transcription factor, that's the retinoic acid uh, uh, orphan receptor, and the negative, right, or the suppressor, that's the REV herb I mentioned to you. It's going to allow for the regulation of both of those, and it's going to regulate BMAL1 transcription, right, with the REV herb inhibiting it and the ROAR activating it. And finally, then the third feedback loop is mediated by, the, again, the clock BMAL1 mediated transcription of a gene, DBP, and the ROAR, REV, or B mediated transcription, then finally, of the infill 3, which, again, we're going to talk about some detail in a few moments. DBP and infill 3 then dimerize, and they bind to a D-box element on the promoter, of many of the core clock genes, providing an additional layer of regulation and ultimately uh, transcription translation. Now, in addition to all that, the clock BMAL1, the ROAR, REV, ERB, and the DBP infill 3 all regulate the transcription of a whole host of other clock output genes. And that those clock output genes are going to give you the rhythmic biological processes which are part of the chronobiology that we call the clock, the circadian clock system in mammals. Okay, so I hope that gave you some more detail than what I mentioned to you yesterday. All right, now let's talk about infill 3. I told you infill 3, now you saw how it was intimately linked up with the BMAL and the clock genes and regulating the PER gene expression and the CRY gene expression, which turns on the second loop for the circadian clock. Now, a paper published in Experimental Molecular Medicine, Volume 51, Article Number 80, in 2019, I went over a couple of months ago when we were talking about T lymphocyte activation. I want you to recall that the NFIL3, which again is another name, E4 binding protein 4, is actually a repressor of not only the genes that, that we were just talking about, but other ones that are going to be, that are going to allow for being repressed by a protein like infill 3 Now, infill 3 is a basic leucine zipper domain protein. It has amino, between amino acids 73 and 146 among a very, it's a pretty small protein, it only has 462 residues. The N-terminal part of that domain actually binds directly to the DNA while the C-terminal region of infill 3 is responsible for its homo or heterodimerization. Okay. So amino acids 299 to 363 on infill 3 actually comprise a transcriptional repressor domain. So infill 3 represses genes. And this is the key feature here. Remember, we're talking about senescence by recruiting a histone deacetylase 2. That's going to be sirtuin 2. And a G9A histone methyltransferase. So it's going to repress genes by recruiting a deacetylase and a methyltransferase. So what does that mean? You deacetylate the chromatin, right? Make heterochromatin. And you know that reduces global transcription. But you also methylate the histone, which even 
increases the inhibition of expression at the transcriptional level. And what that does is it regulates all kinds of biological processes, including what we just went over, the circadian rhythm, cellular viability in terms of checkpoint inhibition, and in fact can control such far-reaching metabolic states such as what occurs in the liver. So in immune cells, infill 3 plays a key role. In B cell, IgE class switching and the development of natural killer cells. Infill 3 binds to the immunoglobulin epsilon promoter and it stimulates immunoglobulin epsilon production. Okay, that's how it works in that system, in the B cell system. Now, infill 3 deficient mice show a dramatic natural killer cell loss due to the influence of that factor on natural killer cell development, maturation, and function. Okay, so this is so the infill is necessary for natural killer cell uh, uh, differentiation. Infill 3 deficient mice also exhibit an elevated interleukin 12 P40 expression system and colon system in the colon tissue. And that induces in the colon Th1 differentiation. And that can result in spontaneous colitis. So infill deficient mice exhibit elevated IL-12 P40 which, induce, which is, is increased in expression because remember, infill is a repressor. So when you don't have infill, you get a lot of interleukin 12 P40 expression in the colon. That then allows for the induction of Th1 differentiation, and that causes an immune response called spontaneous colitis. Th2 cytokines also are affected by infill 3 with an increased expression of interleukin 5 and interleukin 13 in the infill 3 double negative Th2 cells, okay? Furthermore, infill 3 links the circadian rhythm with the immune cell development by suppressing Th17 determining factor, which we've talked about in great length. That's the ROAR gamma T, which turns on Th17. I did mention that last time. So you see the detail here. Now, why am I telling this? Because the clock gene expression, what, that's what I was, the whole prolegomena I was giving you at the beginning of the lecture, is how you have totally different systems like the clock gene, the circadian clock, and you have the infill 3 involved there. Now I'm talking about the infill being involved in all this T cell response and also in the B cell response, basically as a repressor. And if you repress certain systems with the infill 3, it, it can cause a, a turning down of the immune response at the lymphatic system, at the lymphatic system level. That means B and T lymphocytes, right? And a turning down of that normally then would, would allow for what? You would imagine turning down the, the lymphatic system, the acquired immune system would decrease inflammation. However, I just told you that if you don't have infill 3, which is a repressor, right, you actually get an induction of cytokine production, pro-inflammatory cytokines, which induces an autoimmune disease called spontaneous colitis. So that's the same time that you're getting this repression of regulation, which you need in the clock system because the clock has to oscillate. So you have to have activation, repression, activation, repression. This is where the infill comes into play. So in other words, infill is playing two roles here. It's controlling the cyclical process, the pseudo-cyclical process of the clock, um, uh, oscillating clock 
gene system, right? In biological timekeeping at the same time it's repressing normal transcription of pro-inflammatory cytokines. So what would happen if there's a mutation in PIL3G? There would be an alteration in the clock system, which is what we see as people age, and you would get a derepression of the inflammatory response, which we also see as people age. Uh, that hyperimmune response I was talking about, it was about three weeks ago, maybe a month ago. So you see how that works. Same transcription um, factor, but working in totally two different systems, central nervous system, for example, versus the colon. Um, but the infill three working in the clock system, which remembers working in the SCN, which is of course part of the CNS, the suprachiasmatic nucleus, is functioning at the level of control in clocks. So you get then a corruption of the day-night cycle. At the same time, you get a corruption of the immune response. And the immune response actually is helping to restructure in a pathophysiological way the clock system in the, CN, the SCN so that those two phenotypes show up in elderly morbidity, right? Inflammatory response and a lack of um, sleep-wake cycles that are normally healthy regulated, they become pathophysiological. Okay, you get that, that's why I brought those two systems up. So that the transcription factor infill three directly controls Treg activation. These would be the T regulatory cells which normally suppress the T effector cells or TH cells. You could study whether or not a knockout or overexpression of that infill three could trigger an opposing sequential response. So this is the kind of thing that I have not seen in the literature yet for the clock system, but has been studied in the immune system. This is really important to keep in mind. So what I'm telling you is that these could be genes, and I say could because I don't have any, I'm not going to present a paper anyways. It's going to suggest that I know different. But this infill 3 could indeed be a transcription factor that you could Think about looking for pharmaceuticals that would agonize or antagonize in certain states, maybe pathophysiological states, that would allow for the clock to reset and at the same time, the immune system to reset. You see? So that's why people like um, your host here is useful to the pharmaceutical industry because they need ideas on designing novel drugs. And so I'm not going to go into more detail with that because that reveals a little bit too much information. But you get the idea what you need to know and understand about these systems. If you're thinking about the pathophysiology associated with aging, if you want aging to be um, to allow for a healthy ending of life, you may want to be looking at what is controlling gene transcription, especially when it goes uh, inappropriately uh, in a different direction than what it should be relative to a healthy response, such as sleep-wake cycles and then an immune response or an alteration of, let's say, um, the overproduction of uh, the overinduction of cell division in the brain, which could, of course, cause something like glioblastoma or somewhere else in the periphery, which could cause a solid tumor, all of which are relevant 
we're talking about diseases of the elderly. Likewise, we're talking about the hypertrophy of the cardiac muscle, which is another major cause of heart failure, for example, and which is more common in elderly than in younger people, right? except with very specific disease phenotypes. So you get where I'm coming from with this. There's a lot of information I'm giving you, and you need to be able to be taking notes to know why I'm telling you this, because otherwise just going to... You, I'm trying to piece this together for you. And this is what I do um, in my day job, but I'm not doing authentic biochemistry. I consult with people to try to take what is in the scientific literature and create an architectonic that you can use to go into the cells uh, with uh, fine chemicals and small molecular mass compounds to be able to act as agonists and antagonists with specific control at a hierarchical level of gene expression, and then look for output. And the output is a whole other thing that I work on, right? And this, again, involves at the molecular level, the expression of certain gene products or lipid-modifying systems, which you'll be able to detect even in cell culture. Then ultimately, you put that in a mouse, and ultimately, you end up perhaps going down the road and making pharmaceutical. So that was the pitch for all of that. So... <clears throat> As I just said, if the transcription vector in fill 3 directly controls Treg activation, what happens when you do a knockout? So if a non-activated Treg cell normally expresses negligible in fill 3 as compared to the constellation of other naive CD4-positive T cell lineages, then what would you expect if overexpression occurred you would express overexpression would give you the greatest fold effect, right? Because you have, if you have Tregs expressing negligible and then you amplify that signal with infill 3, you're going to not just have a small change in what Tregs are doing, you're going to have a tremendous change. Now, why would you want to do that? Well, if, let's say the Tregs aren't doing their job. They're not regulating the immune response. You have a hyperimmune uh, a response because of, let's say, the induction associated with a uh, etiologic agent, like let's say a virus, let's say a respiratory virus. Then you, what you want to do is get your Treg cells to be tuned up to suppress the T effector cells. And what we we're just talking about too, like things like natural killer cells, right? Or even the B cell response, particularly like uh, Ig epsilon, which of course is important in things like um, asthma. Right, and bronchitis, which are another component of RDS, respiratory distress syndrome. You see how these things can be fit together, right? But you need to know the literature to know how they fit together, and you need to know at a very discrete level what the research says. And you also need to know if the research was done well. And that's another reason why you need a biochemist. We have to look at the experimental methods. We have to look first at the hypothetical deduction and experimental methods, and then look at how experiments were actually conducted, and then look at the raw data, and then look at whether or not the data presents the evidence and come up with a conclusion that can act as an induction for the next movement down the road, whatever you happen to be studying. That's why you need uh, human input, and that's why algorithms don't work, uh, because humans are able to synthesize all that scientific literature and present it in an event ontological way so that you can see how things function in real time rather than in a static mode which is all the computer model could ever provide for you. So I'm going to leave you with that. It's a lot of things to think about. Um, I think we did a pretty good job now 
um, articulating the clock system. And again, we're going to go back and look at some of those gene products and transcription factors and um, the per genes and the cry genes when we talk about what occurs with the expression of those genes in the aging human um, central nervous system. And that's ultimately we're going to be leading into that as well as we go on with the lectures. So I'm going to um, close off this lecture. Um, and remind you that Halloween is coming up. So if you do dress up, make sure you do a good job of it because nowadays with people wearing all kinds of different things, or like for example, masks, a simple mask won't do it like going to a Halloween ball. You have to get more uh, creative than that, okay? Just an observation. All right, so uh, for, I neglected to tell you that the reason I'm doing authentic biochemistry is because I have nothing better to do and now I'm adding that to the end note of what I do with all my lectures. And that is, this is Dr. Dan Guerra from Authentic Biochemistry on the 29th of October, 2020, saying bye for now.